I want to give you briefly a, a summary of last week's text because it leads in and it's really part of this week's passage. In the previous passage, Jesus cursed a fruitless fig tree, causing it to wither to its roots. It was an object lesson that symbolized God's complete rejection of and judgment on the fruitless, faithless, dead worship that was being pumped out of the temple because the temple had gone from a house of prayer and become a den of robbers. And why? Because Israel's religious leaders were corrupt and they had led the entire nation as a whole into dead, empty, false religion. Jesus not only gave an object lesson in the cursing of the fig tree, but he gave a demonstration of God's displeasure with the temple and Israel's worship by going into the temple and putting on a show. I mean, this was, this was not a cleansing, as many of us remembered or, or might call it. This was a cursing. Overturned tables and seats. He prevented anyone from going into the temple and carrying things in. So effectively, he was, he was putting a stop to worship and, and the whole sacrificial system. There's symbolism all over that. And then he began to teach. So a, a basically unknown rabbi who had now become known and was again becoming, at least in the minds of the religious leaders, infamous, is in the temple teaching, basically he's rebuking the whole system. Well, the religious leaders, obviously, as you can imagine, were not excited about what Jesus was doing in that passage. Mark eleven eighteen tells us that in response to what Jesus had done, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Now, this morning's passage is going to be Mark eleven twenty two through 33, but I want to kind of go back two verses and begin in Mark eleven twenty. so I'll be reading from 20 through 33. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that, <coughs> so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses." And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. This is God's word. May we hear it, believe it, and obey it. Let's pray. God, today is a great gift from you to us. You have kept us alive. Our, 
our hearts beating, our bodies maintained so that you could bring us to this sanctuary so that we can worship with your people. What a great and awesome gift. We pray, Father, for our faith to increase, that you would be our prize even more and even more, that we would see the the manifold blessings that you have poured out to us, even for those who are suffering and going through great trials, that they would see Christ today that your people would behold his glorious grace and be resting in him and find their strength in him. Father, thank you for your word, for it is a, a light, a guide for us. We would be lost if you had not given us your perfect holy word, and this morning we get to read it and think about it, and we get to trust that your spirit will cause whatever truths need to sink deeper down into our hearts to sink deeper down into our hearts. We trust that you will show us where we have sin and, and, and we need your help to grow and to change that we would be more like Christ and we would enjoy him more. Father, we lift up this morning marriages. We pray that you would, you would cause husbands to, to be like Christ and to lay down their lives as Christ laid down their lives for the lay down his life for the church. And we pray that, that you would cause wives in marriages to, to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. We know that this is controversial in our culture, but we know that it says it in your word and it is good and it is right and it makes much of Christ. So please, Father, help husbands and wives to do what you have called them to do. Not to be in sin or to, to be sinned against, but to do what you have called them to do. Father, we pray for singles and widows and we pray for the hurting and those who are going through great physical trials. We lift them up to you, Father. We pray that their faith would be in you, that you would give them strength, that they would glorify you in, in whatever comes next. And we do pray for healing. Father, we pray for the lost that you have graciously brought into this place. May they hear the gospel. May they see their need for Christ. And may they throw themselves in the mercy and grace that you have for sinners in Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this past week, I, I found myself wanting Jesus to come to my yard and curse some trees. Well, really, I just wanted him to curse a few stumps because we, we bought, and I really like our house, I like the character, uh, but we bought this interesting house. This German engineer owned it since the, the 60s. It's an older house, and it's basically three houses, my wife calls it a maze, that have been kind of pieced together. It works for us. We love it. We praise God for it. Uh, but, but when we bought the house, um, a lot of interesting things were going on at the house. They're still going on with the house. We like it. It's, we're interesting, so it fits us. Uh, but also in the yard. And so we kind of, we, we, um, we worked with the, the previous owners, and we didn't have any realtors, and uh, sometimes that can be good and bad. And, and we worked out this deal, which we thought was really good because it let us get into the house a little sooner and get some work started on it. But the deal was that they could leave everything that they didn't want to take with them. They're moving into a senior care facility, and, um, and they, they were at that place where they could no longer take care of the house. And, and part of that deal was they didn't have to worry about the lawn anymore. They didn't have to worry about anything. Uh, but, but it was so overgrown. The, the, the German engineer man who had owned the house, he maintained it and cared for it as best as he could, but um, he had cut down a lot of trees and left half stumps and um, not only that, but when we got in there, there were a lot of dead trees and things to take care of. We have three little boys. 
And so stumps, you know, about yay high and, and uh, rose bushes that are coming out of nowhere and all the little dangers that can come. And we, we, we kind of like to just let them just roam around in our almost acre yard and just have fun. And so I've been on this mission to clear the yard and to, to make it a little safer and nicer. But there has been this one stump. It's just like it's right where home plate is in our, in our, in our baseball games. It's like right there. It's kind of in the way. And, and one of my sons said, Dad, let, on your off day, let's get the stump. Let's get that stump. And they, oh, my heart, yes. Mission for, for the Dufek boys on Dad's off day. And so it was really exciting to begin with, but, but if you know anything about stumps, it's, it's not the chopping of the tree or the, 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 the main trunk that's hard. That's fun. That's easy. That makes a man or a woman feel alive. Look at what I did. This thing came down. Woo! And then you realize if you're taking out the stump that there's all these roots, <laughs> And, and it's, it can take two, three, even more years for the roots to wither up. And so I digging away, chopping, I got this pick maddock thing. It's like half axe, half pick. It's, it's, it's one of my coolest tools. And I'm going at this thing, and it took me the whole morning and part of the afternoon to get this one stump. But I have a trophy. If you want to see, you can drive by my, my house. There's many of these trophies on the side of my garage now. And, and there's this huge monster stump. But honestly, I found myself, because of last week's text and this week's text, thinking about how Jesus causes tree roots to wither up. And it takes me six hours to get one tree stump out of my yard. When Peter saw the withered tree and remembered that Jesus had cursed it, verse 21 tells us that Peter, playing the role of Captain Obvious, says what, what I think the rest of the disciples had already realized and were thinking in their heads. Rabbi, look! The tree that you cursed has withered. Peter was saying, check it out! Look what you did, Jesus! You know, remember when you cursed it? Well, it, that curse actually worked. Peter and the disciples were amazed by what Jesus had done, and rightfully so. Who is like Jesus? Nobody is like him. I mean, Jesus can calm a storm. He can heal the sick. He can cast out demons. He, he can raise the dead back to life, all with his words. Just his words. Jesus' response to Peter and the disciples was, we'll, we'll say for now, interesting. They're amazed. They're, they're, they're marveling over this cursed tree. And here's what Jesus says in response. Have faith in God. Peter, disciples, have faith in God. Now, I do not believe that this was a rebuke of the disciples' amazement over what Jesus had done. God's people should always be amazed by who God is and what God has done in this world. The appropriate response to God in his work is awe and wonder. That, that's the, that should be the, the heart beat of the Christian. And I know that we go through seasons where, where we might say they're, they're dry or it's more difficult to, to see the, the awe and wonder of who God is and what he has done in, in creation and salvation. But, but I'm talking long and, and over the course of our lives and even in the hard times, the heartbeat of the, the Christian is he is so good. He is so awesome. He is so marvelous. Look at what he is. We can't help it. We've been saved by grace. We deserve hell, we deserve wrath, and, and God has, has blessed us with this miraculous work in saving us. In Psalm 150, the psalmist calls God's people to worship God 
And I want you to, to notice why he calls them to worship God. Psalm 150, verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Why? Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Church, the right response to seeing God do something amazing is amazement. It is, we are to praise him. We are to worship him because of what he has done. When God heals someone, whether it's through miraculous means or ordinary means, our response should not be, that's, that's no big deal. You know, she's in remission or, um, yeah, you got in that car accident and everybody's okay or, or um, you, you've been praying, we've been praying for her and, or for him and, and God answered, no big deal because God is God and he can heal people all the time whenever he wants. So this is just kind of what he does. It's, that, that's like this super spiritual, I, I, it doesn't line up with reality response. The response should be something like, God, you're awesome, merciful and mighty, though you didn't have to, though that person didn't deserve it. If it was for you, though you didn't deserve it, you chose to spare their life. You chose to, to spare my life, to give me more time, to give them more time, maybe to repent, to, to, to trust in Jesus. You healed them, you sustained them, you kept them. And it displays that you are powerful and you are compassionate. When God grants repentance of sin and faith in Christ to a once lost and helpless, hopeless and dead sinner, and they are born again, they are justified, they are adopted and given eternal life, we're not to yawn and simply say, of course. The Bible says that the elect are going to trust in Christ. That, that should not be our, I mean, theologically it's true, and yet our heart's response, our response to, to hearing that, that someone has trusted in Christ and has been born again and there's evidence of, of this reality in their lives should be God has done the miracle again. He has rescued a sinner. He has replaced the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. God alone has saved their soul and he is glorious and he is mighty. Church, when God brings a wayward Christian back, someone who seemed to have abandoned Christ but has since returned to the fold, it's not just another day in the life of the church. It's a day to celebrate a mighty, gracious act of our Heavenly Father. A day to give thanks for God because he has loosened the grips of sin and, and brought a, a, a brother or sister who we weren't sure was truly a brother or sister out of, of destruction and brought them in and back to his people. I mean, you don't just go about your business when that happens. You stop, you praise God, you rejoice, and you're amazed. God's mighty work is good, right, and it is our appropriate response to be amazed by it. In saying, have faith in God, Jesus was not rebuking the disciples for being amazed at his power. He was addressing something else, doubt. There was some level of doubt, something there that, that, that was not full of faith. And he was at the same time reinforcing an essential truth. His disciples, that is, those who follow Jesus, must trust in God. This is to mark their lives. I know it's simple, and yet our Lord said so many simple, profound, and necessary truths that we need to come back to over and over again. And here is one, trust in God. You must have faith in God. 
It was a command that applies just as much to us today as it did to the 12 then. What Jesus says will happen, will happen. And his people are to believe it. Whatever he says, everything he says, it's all true. Every single word. In this case, Jesus had said that no one would ever eat fruit from that fig tree again. Jesus had said that. It was going to happen. And his disciples were to believe it. So they're still, it's not that they were wrong for being, oh, look at what you've done. This is, this is a miracle. There's some element of doubt, of, of, of surprise because of, of doubt. We are to have faith in God and to believe what Jesus says. They're the same thing. True faith in God is to believe what Jesus has said. To doubt Jesus' word is to lack faith in God. Jesus is the true object of our faith. Faith gets thrown around, that word gets thrown around all the time. People talk about being a man or a woman of faith. People will say, I have faith. The Bible says, ultimately, that doesn't matter if your faith is not in Jesus. It's, It's meaningless. That faith will not save you. There's one faith. There's only one faith, biblically speaking, We come to the gospel and that faith is faith in Christ. And in this text, Jesus will give us a lesson on faith. (coughs) Now after commanding the disciples to have faith in God, Jesus goes on to say this in verses 23 and 24. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Do you want to move a mountain? Would you like to have whatever you want, even if it maybe is not good for you? Well, some have used these verses to teach that you can physically move a mountain and that you can have whatever you want. Whatever it is that your heart desires, even if it seems to contradict the scriptures, These teachers will pull these verses out of not just their context, they will ignore the rest of what Scripture teaches about these things. And this teaching, this theology is is called word of faith theology, or many people have called it name it and claim it. Now this teaching is heretical. And sadly, if you turn on the TV and you go through the religious or the Christian stations, not all of them and not every program, but It's been my experience the majority of them are filled with this garbage, this junk. If it wasn't believed by so many throughout the world, not just in America, but throughout the world, it's been said that we as American and as the American church have been pumping this out. I mean, I I see the parallel there to the temple stuff. Uh, Some some of us Christians or professing Christians have been pumping this out to the world. If it wasn't believed by so many in the world, we would just laugh at it. That's a joke, this, this name it and claim it, this word of faith theology. It's really just a lie that pleases a person's sinful, selfish desires. And it turns the good news about God and what he has done in Jesus for sinners into a means to an end. And that end is not fellowship with God, forgiveness of sins, and joy in Jesus Christ. Rather, it is fellowship with the world, cheap grace, and joy in money. That's what happens here. They'll talk about the cross. They might talk about the need for repentance and faith. People can get saved under this teaching, and yet it's garbage. 
They, they, they just use those things, and oftentimes they'll use words, biblical words, but they mean something very different by it. Those who teach word of faith theology turn the Christian life into a pyramid scheme. And ultimately, those who, who come under this teaching, again, by God's grace, there are people that get saved under these teachers. Those who come under this teaching, though, and if they, they're there for long enough under this teaching, oh, it's going to destroy their souls. I mean, just think about it. You're hearing over and over again that you just got to believe. If you believe, then all your problems will be over. Your debt will be wiped away. Not only that, but you'll get rich. You'll have a bunch of cars. You'll live in a big house. You'll never get sick. Everything will go just the way you want it. You hear that over and over and over again. And there seem to be, this is kind of like how Facebook works. There's always somebody that's happy. And, and, and the, the non-happy ones are either, you know, lie and then they post or they just don't go on Facebook. So you go there and you're like, look, everybody's happy. Everybody's always happy on Facebook. And then you get depressed because you're like, I'm not happy. And, and that's kind of the, the, the lie, the deceit of, of Facebook and social media. There's everybody's happy. No, just the people that are happy are posting and telling everybody else how happy they are and just this cycle. And then we get happy and we tell everybody, you know, um, there's good stuff. I'm not throwing Facebook under the bus trying to say it's of the devil or anything. But, th- but there's a similarity in this prosperity or this name it, claim it, word of faith theology. There's always somebody that, by God's grace, his, his, his favor, he, he, he blesses people, not just Christians, who they'll point to and say, look, they prayed that and it happened. Meanwhile, the rest of everybody else is praying the same prayer and it's not happening. And what do they say? Well, you just don't have enough faith. You got that disease or you, this happened to you or you're in debt because... Not because you're, you're, you're terrible decisions, but because you just don't believe enough. And so they hear that over and over and over again. And ultimately, you know what they're doing? They're looking inward for the answer. I have to muster up enough faith when Jesus says the, the faith the size of a mustard seed is enough. You see the contradiction? This stuff points us to ourselves and our own faith. It's really faith in self. When Jesus and the scriptures are constantly pointing us to Jesus and what he has done. Look to Jesus. He's the one that will bring you through this. And not only that, but the testimony of Jesus' own life, the testimony of the disciples' lives and what happened to them, and the testimony of church history tell us that the Christian life is not easy. We're not going to be rich. Most of us won't be. And the ones that are have been entrusted with a gift and they're not just to sit on that pile of money and live, on the, live the high life but to use it. They've been entrusted with it to make much of Christ and to, and to support missionaries and be wise stewards. So what Jesus was referring to in this, this talk of faith and prayer had nothing to do with rearranging the landscape. He wasn't telling people, take a trip to the Alps and if you just believe, you can rearrange the Alps. Go to the Rockies and, and have some fun. People out there that believe that they can do that. He wasn't teaching Christians that we, we have the power to speak things into existence or that by thinking and saying out loud happy thoughts in Jesus' name, we're going to get whatever we want. Because God's better than that. I know some of my prayers are, I'm so thankful that God didn't, didn't answer that prayer. Because he's wiser and perfect and knows what I need and, and what, what will make me more like his son. And just like in the case of the cursing of the fig tree, a little bit of background goes a long way in understanding this passage. In this case, some geography and, and just a little bit of history. At this point, Jesus and the disciples were standing by or near the fig tree that had withered, likely on the Mount of Olives, which overlooked Jerusalem. 
they would have had a good view of Herod's enormous fortress, one of Herod's enormous fortresses called the Fortress of Herodian. You see this pattern with Herod? Everything gets named after him. He does some, some major improvements to the temple. It's Herod's temple. He names everything after himself. He's got an ego problem, a, a, a glory and a worship issue. But Herod had built strongholds throughout the region that he could retreat to if war or rebellion broke out. Romans turn on him. He needs to flee. He can go to one of these fortresses, these citadels, and hide out for some time and try and escape. Uh, Not only that, but if the Jews turned on him, if there was some some coup attempt, then he could flee to one of these places and and muster up his his military and then address the, the rebellion. Well, this massive fortress that they would have been able to see from where they were Herod had built by using slaves and and he had them carve out dirt from a hill in order to to build up the foundation, basically to to make a mountain for this fortress. It was a massive, you can still see the ruins of the Herodian fortress. It's, It's impressive. And by doing this, Herod had completely changed the landscape in that area. It was said that he had moved a mountain It was an amazing accomplishment in human terms. And Jesus, like he did with the fig tree, made an object lesson. It was in the background. There's the fig tree. And Jesus was speaking figuratively. I'm not spiritualizing the text. I'm explaining this is what's going on. This is what was around them. This makes sense. And Jesus was alluding to Herod's fortress and assuring the disciples that if they had faith in God, they too could do amazing things. They they saw this amazing work by Herod and Jesus was saying, you can do amazing things too. In fact, if their faith was in God and they did not doubt, they would be able to do far greater things than move a mountain like Herod. To move a a mountain like Herod is one thing, but to have it thrown into the sea is is another far greater thing. And in the gospel, God has and is doing something far greater than moving a mountain and throwing it into the sea. He reconciles sinners to himself through the death and resurrection of his son. Think about what God has done in the gospel. We rebellious sinners, born sinners choosing to sin, have been reconciled to a holy God, a holy God who has always existed, eternally existed, who has never been lonely because unlike anyone or anything else, exists in perfect triunity as Father, Son, and Spirit. He's always existed in love between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. He has not been lonely. He needs nothing from us. Has made a way to redeem us, and not just to redeem us, but to, to call us his holy people, to call us his sons and daughters. That's so much bigger and grand and glorious than a mountain falling or being thrown into the sea. And God has done it in the gospel. Friend, if your faith is in him, in in Jesus Christ, well, you will do far greater things than Herod. Like what? Well, think about what the disciples, these these men that Jesus was, was teaching this very truth to would later do. They would be sent out by God in the power of the Holy Spirit and they would plant churches. And the church, the New Testament people of God, would be built by these ragtag, crazy, sometimes messed up, but godly, faithful men. 
And that church would, would persevere in the midst of great persecution over and over again. And they would be a part of that. <laughs> Far greater things than Herod, Herod's temple would be destroyed. Herod's temple will not last into eternity, but you know what will? The people of God. And, and these, these men, and later on other men and women, and, and men and women throughout history will be and have been used by God to, to do things that will be eternal. Wow. Brother, sister, you will proclaim the gospel to the lost. You will share this glorious good news and people will hear it and by the power of the Spirit, they will be, be brought into an eternal kingdom where they will worship the one true God. Talk about an amazing work. You get to do this. You will glorify God. Because of sin, you could not glorify God. You, you were an enemy of God and yet, now you get to glorify God and do what you were made to do. You were created in God's image to glorify God and now you can. That's awesome. You will experience the forgiveness of your sins. If you've ever been convicted of your sins and if you're a Christian, you have been, you know that, that at some point you have been and hopefully, you know, it, it's not in the same way because you're, you're not, you have a different relationship to the law but you still have this awareness of your sin. God reveals it to you and you repent and and. And if you've ever been a Christian, you, you know the weight of sin. Not if you ever ha- have been, if you are a Christian. You know the weight of sin. And, and, and you, you've had those thoughts of like, God doesn't owe me anything. What he owes me really is hell. And I deserve his wrath. And he would be righteous and just to give it to me. And yet, because of his son's finished work, because of his atoning death on the cross and his resurrection, that weight has been taken off of me, put on Christ, and he bore the wrath that I deserve. And I am forgiven. You get to experience that. You'll one day be glorified. Bodily raised from the grave. The list goes on and on. And all of these things, which will matter in eternity, far outshine any man-made, self-glorifying, faithless work like what Herod did. That's, that's for you. You get to be a part of this. In verse 24, Jesus goes on to say, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. The Lord Jesus Christ is not some new age guru who teaches mantras and, and, and wants us to believe in the power of our words. That's not what he's saying here. Telling us that, that we can speak things into existence. Nor is he a, a life coach who teaches, teaches you to put your trust in yourself. Now I know sometimes it's, it's semantics. People say, well, I'm in Christ, so therefore if I'm in Christ, then I can, I can, it's me. And yes, we have our own identity. We are not, uh, we, we are not Christ, though we're in Christ. I get all that. But the reality is we're never pointed to ourselves. We're pointed to Jesus. And so Jesus doesn't say just, just have more confidence in yourself. He, he, he teaches us and the word teaches us in the spirit. It brings us about in us as we, as we obey him and, and, and follow Christ is Look to Jesus. Have confidence in Jesus. Don't trust in yourself because you will lead yourself astray. Trust in in God and his word. Look to Christ. So he's not pumping up our egos. And Jesus is not exhorting us to have faith in faith as if faith is some God to be believed in. He has just said, have faith in God. He put a a name to, to where that faith is to be placed in God. Jesus is saying that there is a fundamental and vital connection between faith in God and answered prayer. If you do not pray in faith, if you simply approach prayer as a superstitious routine, it means nothing and it is not true prayer. 
The same is true of of people who reject the God of the Bible, who do not trust in the work of Jesus Christ and are without the Holy Spirit. Sure, they pray, but they're praying to some other God. They're not praying to God the Father, through God the Son, by God the Spirit. And that is biblical, true prayer. It's to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. So they're praying to some other false god. What Jesus says here is that when a person cries out to the one true God in prayer, they can know without a doubt that God hears their prayers. Oh, that's so good. Especially you brothers or sisters who who are struggling right now and maybe asking, is God hearing this prayer? And not only does he hear your prayers, but he will answer them. And he will answer them perfectly every single time. But verse 24 must be understood in light of other scriptures which call for God's people to pray in accordance with God's will. It's not just a tagline. I know some people are like, well, you don't have to say in accordance to God's will. It's not a bad habit because Jesus did it. Jesus, God's own sinless son who had a perfect relationship and has a perfect relationship with God the Father who prayed perfectly, demonstrated this in the garden He was faced with the crushing weight of what was to come at the cross. He was faced with the reality that that his own father would be pouring out his wrath against our sin on him. And Mark 14, 32 through 36 tells us what he prayed. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus shared his heart with his father. This is what I want. This, this, this is what I, I'm feeling. This is my desire. And he also showed faith in God, in, in the father. You can do it. You can do whatever you want. And yet, he said, not my will, but your will. Jesus, the next day, would go to the cross the father did answer Jesus' prayer. His answer was, no, I'm not going to remove this cup from your hand. And not only did Jesus ask the father to remove the cup, but he, he, he prayed. He submitted to the father's will. Jesus told his father what was on his heart, and his father answered that prayer. The same goes for us. Church, Jesus modeled true prayer in the garden. He modeled it throughout his entire earthly ministry. And it is how we are to pray as well. We are to, to ask God for whatever is on our heart. We are to believe that God can do whatever we ask. And then we are to submit our will to his will, underneath his will. Now this qualification can be found in many places, but it, it's also found in another important text, Matthew 6.10, which many of us know as the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus teaching his disciples to pray, says this. And remember, the Lord's Prayer is a model. It's an example. It's a great prayer. And we can use it and we should use it. But there are many other prayer models in Scripture. And prayers from the heart that line up with God's Word are, are good too. 
So this is not some prayer that we have to repeat superstitiously, but it's a good prayer. And look at what Jesus says in this prayer. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done. Jesus taught the disciples how to pray and he, he put this in there. Your will be done. You, you pray this. You submit your will to the fathers just like Jesus did. Now there's another important matter when it comes to prayer and we might call this an essential ingredient in prayer. Now, I, I like to cook, and by cook, I don't mean just grill. I'm not saying I'm a great cook, but, but I like it. I've found that it is my artistic or creative outlet. <laughs> I've tried many different things in my life. I, I did the drawing thing for a while. I tried painting. In art class in high, high school, I made this mug in, in um, pottery uh, that I was so excited about. I really thought I had an A on this thing. This Nike mug, I was a sport jock guy, remember? Nike mug, it had the swoosh coming out of the mug. That was the handle. It had Nike across, spent so much time. I actually put in, I was not a good student. I put in extra hours on that thing. Thought I was getting an A. I looked at my grade. If I remember right, I got a C on that thing. And that was like the best thing I've ever made. So, so I'm not very creative, uh, at least gifted. I like to write. I like I like poetry and, and trying to, Amy has said it's good. I'm pretty sure nobody else but her and Jesus think they're good when they're about Jesus. But cooking, I'm not good at it, I don't think. I'm okay. Uh, but, but I have found, uh, and this is my, kind of my style, I, I like to start with the recipe and I like to go off the recipe quickly. I like to change things out. I don't want to go to the store. I want to find something that will be just as good, if not better, that's already in our house. And I know that this can go crazy, but, but I think I'm pretty good at this part of the deal. And, I, and I've made some really good things. I could never make them again, but, but I've made them. And here's what I've found in doing this. Sometimes there are essential ingredients in a recipe that if you take them out, it's no longer that. If you're making steak, you need some steak, right? You can't just take that out and, and, and put some noodles on the grill. It's not going to work, right? Jesus in this verse, verse 25, gives us an, an essential ingredient in prayer. And for many of us, it's very difficult. And it's a little hard to see the connection, but Jesus gives it to us. And it's this, forgiveness. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So not only is faith essential in prayer, and that makes sense. You come to God praying something, believing that he can give it and provide it and he will answer the prayer. But not only that, and not only must we submit to God's will, we must be willing to forgive others. J.C. Ryle summarized it this way. We have no right to look for mercy if we are not ready to extend mercy to our brethren. We cannot really feel the sinfulness of the sins we ask to have pardoned if we cherish malice towards our fellow men. We have no right to look for mercy if we are not ready to extend mercy to our brethren. Every time we go to, to the Lord in prayer, there's, there's an act of faith, but there's also us petitioning, us asking God and and. Every interaction that we have with God is of grace and he's giving us his grace and hearing our prayers. It's an act of grace on his part that, that he answers our prayers. 
And we have to be willing to extend grace and forgive others. This verse and others like it do not mean that we must just simply forgive those who sin against us without their repenting. Now I add to that that we must be willing and there is a sense that we just have to forgive. Like we, we as, as believers cannot just sit on and, and harbor in resentment and anger and hate. We cannot hate people. And so there, there is a sense we just, we just have to be at a place where, where we forgive people. But when it comes to, to moving towards something more than that, there needs to be repentance. This passage and others like it assume that the person has repented. After all, scriptures like Matthew 18, 15 through 17, which lays out the process of church discipline, do not say, if your brother sins against you, let it go. Just pretend like it never happened. Just start singing, let it go. You know, pull out the Frozen song, start singing, that, that'll help carry you through that. that. That's not what the text says. It says this, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. What that means is that you go to them and you say, you sinned against me. And if they listen, meaning they hear you, they acknowledge their sin, they confess it, they repent, it's done. You forgive them right there, it's done. It's, you, you, you've moved past that now or you're, you're, you, you can move past that now and they've been forgiven. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is not bring some people to team up on this person. This is, they need to listen. You're going to talk this out. You're going to share your side. They're going to share their side. And those people are going to be witnesses and say, no, you're wrong. They didn't sin against you. Or yes, they're sinning against you and they're refusing to repent. And in that case, if they refuse to listen, well, then you tell it to the church. That is, you bring it before the whole church. And if, if they still refuse to listen, to turn from their sin and repent and ask for forgiveness, well, then the church is to let them go. That is, they are to treat them as a Gentile, as a tax collector. They are to view them as not a Christian. Our understanding of that is they are to be removed from church membership. God requires us to repent when we sin. And when we repent, he forgives. The same is to be true of us. If someone injures us, offends us, but then confesses their sin and asks for our forgiveness, we cannot hold a grudge. We cannot refuse to forgive. If we do, well, there's a gospel issue. It's not just, you know what, I, I just, I'm not going to forgive you. I, I just refuse to. There's a gospel issue because you're forgetting that, that you are a great sinner who has been forgiven and you have no right to withhold forgiveness. Doesn't mean reconciliation. Doesn't mean you forget what happened. Doesn't mean there's not a strain or an end to a friendship or a certain aspect of a relationship. Doesn't mean any of that. that that's going to, to likely happen and maybe there is reconciliation but what the Christian must not, cannot do is refuse to forgive. Jesus says it, not me. We have sinned against a holy God and yet in Christ we have been forgiven by God. Jesus' point is that every Christian is to be ready and must in a sense have already, must be willing to and is working towards forgiving a person who sins against them. Christian, are you willing to forgive those who have sinned against you? Are you willing to forgive those who have asked you for forgiveness? You have to be. You, you need to be. Or do you hold grudges and refuse to forgive those who cry out to you for mercy? The gospel compels us to forgive others. 
To forgive someone is to extend to them mercy and grace. Forgiveness is undeserved, unearned, and when we forgive someone who has sinned against us and repented, we are saying that we're not against them. There's no hatred on our, in our heart towards them, and we do not desire vengeance. We don't want to get even. There's something wonderful that happens when we experience forgiveness from people and we forgive other people. I've recently been on the end of both of these. Uh, I, I often get to the place, somebody starts repenting, I can see their heart, and, and I just want to say, you know, you can talk more, you can share more if you need to, but you don't have to, because I, I've forgiven you, and, and I want to worship Jesus with you, and it's so sweet, because I can see the weight that those words can, can just, and it's really Jesus and the reality of the gospel that is is bringing the weight off my brother or sister who has sinned against me. Now, I don't want you to sin against me, so I'm not asking you, hey, sin against me so I can forgive you. That's not what I'm getting at here. But, but what I'm saying is when, when you're in that situation and you know somebody is truly repentant and they've come to you and they're broken and they're mourning over their sin against God, against you, and you get to say, I forgive you. And you get to see what, what happens in them and you get to tell them, let's enjoy Christ together. <laughs> let's Let's worship. Let's, let's disciple. Let's, let's share the gospel with people. Oh, it's so wonderful. I think that, for me, is better than being forgiven. But, but then on the other end, when I'm forgiven and, and, and I'm pouring out my arms, you know, I might explain this is what was going on, but, but it was sin and I'm sorry, and they say, I, I've forgiven you. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. And, and we, 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 want to, we should want that for other people and for ourselves. John MacArthur has said that Forgiveness is the most godlike act a Christian can do. No act is more divine than forgiveness. Never are we more like God than when we forgive. And so this adds another aspect to forgiveness. We're called to be like Christ, to follow his example. We're not going to do it perfectly, but, but he calls us to, to this work of forgiving other people who have sinned against us. And we saw it, and we see it. On the cross, he's being sinned against. The perfect son of God who never sinned is being sinned against in the worst way. He's, he's being murdered because of, of these, these people and ultimately because of our sin. And he, he pleads with God to forgive them. And we must forgive others as well. If you're a Christian, I ask you today, are there any people that have asked for your forgiveness but you have refused to give it? You've got to address this. This is a gracious word from God in his scriptures so that you can enjoy Christ more. Because you know what happens? If you're harboring hate towards someone or anger, you know what happens? Your joy is stolen from you. It, it, it's, you, you you're bitter. You're angry. You, you cannot bask in the glory of, of Christ and his gospel and, and experience all of what God has for you because rather than, than hearing the gospel saying, that's awesome, I believe it, I've been saved and I'm following Jesus, this is sweet, let's, let's tell everybody about Jesus because instead you're sitting there, I, I hate them. I'm so angry with them. I want them to, to experience pain and suffering. And there's, there, there's no connection between that and the glorious gospel that you believe. And so for your own sake, I plead with you, brother, sister, forgive. Ask God. I was talking with someone after the service. They said, I know I have to, I want to, but I'm, I'm struggling. Ask God for help. You have the Holy Spirit. 
He can do this. He's done it over and over again. You've heard the stories about people forgiving people for crazy, brutal things. You say, that's not you, but that's the same Holy Spirit in them that's bringing that fruit about in their lives that can do it in your life. So, so submit that to, to Christ and enjoy the gospel more. Forgiving someone doesn't mean reconciliation or that the relationship will ever be like it was before. But if you refuse to forgive someone, well then, you're disobeying God. You've forgotten the gospel. Your heart is in a bad place and your prayers will be affected. Don't you want God to hear your prayers and answer them? Yes, you're his child if you're a Christian and yes, I understand he still hears your prayers and he's, but there's something here. I, I, I don't want to go too far, but the text says that there's a disconnect in your prayer life if you're not willing to forgive. So for your joy, for your prayer life, for your brother, your sister, and others who have sinned against you, forgive. This brings us to the last portion of the text, and there's a connection. It's still about faith. When Jesus and the disciples returned to Jerusalem and the temple, the religious leaders at the temple confronted Jesus. I think that many of these religious leaders that that would have been made up of the Sanhedrin, the, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, were probably the very same ones that were in the temple the day before that had witnessed Jesus do what he did thrown over the tables, preventing the, wor- the, the, sacrifice, the sacrifice from being given, all that he was doing, they, they were there. I think most, if not all of them, were made up this group. And, and so here's Jesus again, and they see him, and they go to him, and they confront him, and they, they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? They believed that Jesus had been out of line. The whole temple scene was sin on his part, He had no authority because they had the authority. This was not only at the heart of the conflict between the unbelieving religious leaders, this matter of authority, but it's at the heart of the matter for unbelievers today. Every single non-Christian, this is part of the issue. An unbeliever refuses to submit to the authority and the lordship of Jesus Christ. The Bible says, Jesus is Lord. The unbeliever says, I don't think so. Um, No. Now, I'm, I'm Lord, ultimately. Yeah, there's all these gods. I'm going to go to church. I might put on a front. But Jesus is not Lord because I'm Lord. That's what they, they ultimately believe. There's an authority issue. They do not believe that Jesus has the right to tell them what to do. Don't have sex before marriage. Pfft. Jesus doesn't have the right. It's my body. I'll do with it what I please. Don't, don't kill, kill life. My body, I'll do it. Jesus says, don't do it. And the non-believer, and at times the Christian, sadly, says, I am Lord, but Jesus has the right. In response to their question about where his authority came from, Mark tells us in verses 29 and 30, and 30, Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Here's the question. Was the baptism of John from heaven, that is, was it from God or from man? Answer me. I love it. Answer me. Tell me. You want me to answer your question? You answer this question first. They had tried to trap Jesus with a question and he turned it around and asked them a question. It put them in a tough spot because if they said that the, the baptism of John was from heaven, from God, well then he would say, then why didn't you believe what he said? Why did you reject John the Baptist? And if they said that it was not from heaven but from man, that ultimately that it was of the devil, that, that John the Baptist was a false prophet, well, 
the consensus among the, the people, the, the, the Israelite people, was that John was, the, was a, a true prophet of God. And so they were in this, this tough spot, say what they really believed. John was not, of, not sent by God. And then risk what the crowd would do or say what they really felt and risk whatever came from Jesus. And so what did they answer? It's, it's almost postmodern. We do not know. I don't know. Your truth is your truth, Jesus. Our truth is our truth. Let's just, let's just agree to disagree. You do your thing, I'll do, we'll do our thing. They refuse to take a position, and, and you can't be indifferent when it comes to Jesus. He, he does not allow it. He knew that they were lying, and Jesus answered and said to them, Then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. They thought that they had the authority, but Jesus does. They thought that they were in control, but Jesus is. They thought that they could ask Jesus a question, but Jesus would ask them a question. Later, when they arrested Jesus, they thought that they had the power to turn Jesus over to the Gentiles and have him crucified. But as we read in Scripture, it was Jesus who willingly turned himself over so that he could be sacrificed for our sins so that we could be redeemed. They thought their will, will would be done, but it was God's will that would be and is done. The religious leader's authority problem was just a symptom of the real problem. This is what ties the whole passage together. They lacked faith in God. They did not trust in God. Now, someone might suggest, look, they're Israel's religious leaders. They have faith, but Jesus is God. The Nicene Creed puts it well, and it's been used by the church Throughout history, Protestant as well, it says, God of Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. If you reject Jesus, you reject God. They had no faith in Christ, and so they had no faith in God. Jesus had his authority because it had been given to him by God the Father, his Father in heaven. If you're not a Christian, at some level you think you have the authority. And the real issue is that you do not believe in Jesus Christ. Your faith is not in God. It is in something or someone or yourself, but not in the one true God. You don't have authority. Jesus does. You think that you're in control. You're not Jesus's. You think that Jesus has to answer your questions. But here's the thing. You have to answer Jesus's questions. And I, I believe one of the questions that you have to answer that comes from Scripture is, what will you do with your sin? What will you do with it? Only Jesus can handle and take away your sin. The only real solution to humanity's greatest problem is faith in Jesus Christ. Church, if you have Christ... And by definition, you're the church, so you have Christ. Believer, brother, sister in Christ. Then you have faith in God. He hears your prayers. You must obey his word, and you have life. But if you do not have faith in Christ, then, then you need faith in Christ. There's no other hope. Let's pray. Oh, great God in heaven who has given us his word, we thank you for it. Tells us not what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. And I pray, Father, that you would use it in my life, in this church's life, to make us more like Christ, our Savior and your Son. Please, God, increase our faith. Help us to pray bold, big prayers 
believing and knowing that you can do them and at the same time submit our will to your will. Fully trusting that you are perfect and you know best. Father, we pray that you would help us to forgive others who have sinned against us. That others would forgive us who we have sinned against. That we might enjoy the gospel more and more together. And you would bring unity once again through the cross. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.